welcome to the Blue Roads Changemaker podcast. You'll enjoy conversations with amazing changemakers, solutionaries, and social innovators who have all taken the path from local citizen to global changemaker. They do so by working to change the system that creates the world's most challenging issues. We structure these interviews around the Blue Roads slogan, homegrown solutions for a patchwork world, and ask participants to tell us about their origins, their work to address issues in their communities, how they've engaged with others different from themselves, and how they've used these experiences to make the leap to changemakers addressing the UN Sustainable Development Goals. As their host, I try hard to take myself out of the conversation as much as possible, that is, after introducing participants, so you won't notice the typical back and forth of the interview process. I hope this will be helpful to you to hear the stories as a complete narrative that addresses all four quadrants of the Blue Roads Changemaker journey, homegrown solutions for a patchwork world. In today's episode, we hear part one of Changemaker Penny Franklin's homegrown story. You'll learn from her about her early life and influences and how her own experiences in school, as well as the experiences of her children, had a big impact on the direction she has taken to create change in the world. Welcome, everyone. This is Blue Roads Education Group, and I am excited today to have another wonderful guest with me. This is Penny Franklin, and I've known Penny for quite a few years. First, uh, when I worked in Montgomery County Public Schools in Southwest Virginia, I knew her as a school board member. And then um, in more recent years, I get to see her in action doing amazing work with the Dialogue on Race. So I'm so excited that she's agreed to be with me today and tell her story in the Blue Roads framework, Homegrown Solutions for a Patchwork World. So welcome, Penny. Glad you're here. Good to be here. Thank you. So we're going to just start by asking you to speak to our homegrown quadrant, which is where were you grown? Who are your people? And why are those roots important to you? I was born and raised here in Southwest Virginia, Montgomery County, Christiansburg. I'm one of seven children, number four in the middle. I grew up in a segregated community. The schools integrated when I was in the second grade, and that had a huge impact on me. I did not really know it then, but I can tell with the work that I do and reflecting back on why I uh, think and push so hard about different things. A lot of that comes back from experiences through going through integration. My father is from Christiansburg, was from Christiansburg, went to Youngstown, Ohio, as many African-Americans did in the 40s, 50s, to find work because they couldn't find work in the South. Met my mother in Youngstown, Ohio, married her, and then bought her back to Gooseneck Holler in Christiansburg. And as she said, she didn't know it then, but she realized that God had this little piece of heaven ready for her. She said she cried a lot when she woke up the next morning and looked around and realized where she was. So with her being from Ohio, she did not, she had not really experienced segregation 
like it was in the South. And she has this attitude of, I don't care, <laughs> right? <laughs> I remember, I can remember her telling stories about my grandmother telling her when she would go to town and go shopping that, you know, Black people weren't allowed to try on clothes. And she was just like, whatever. And going into Legacy department store and trying on clothes. And nobody said anything, right? Um, she's just an amazing woman who helped ingrain this attitude of her. her uh, she would make a comment that I can, it just dwells in the back of my head all the time. Who said so? You know, when someone would say something that she didn't agree with or she questioned, she would necessarily get into a big discussion. She would just say, who said so? Right. <laughs> and that would kind of be the end of it. It's like, whatever. So that attitude of who said something can't change or something has to be a certain way because of race or socioeconomic situations or whatever. If it's not just, then who said so? So you just ignore it, change it, do something different. So growing up in those first few years of integration, the first two years was in a classroom with a teacher who had first and second grade students together in a small classroom. When I reflect and go back into that building now, I'm like, oh my goodness, how did this happen? So we're talking kids that came from all over. Uh, the surrounding area, we were bussed in, or other children were bussed in because I just lived about a mile from that building, Friends Elementary School. And when you think about it, you had a classroom full of, at that time, six-year-olds and seven-year-olds, first and second graders. And there had to have been at least 15 to 20 children in each of those classes, if not more. And I remember someone meeting with me, and I can't remember the individual's name, and they showed a roster where Montgomery County showed how many stu the students that were in the school, Friends Elementary, and in the classes. And it had this crazy little number, like 10 or 12 students in the class. And I looked at the, I said, my family alone <laughs> was bigger than that. So I know that this is not correct. So the numbers that were put out there to reflect how many students were actually being taught by one teacher in a classroom, they're not true. So I would love someday to go and figure out how to look, uh, look that information up again to see exactly how the African-American uh, population was documented in Montgomery County during that period of time, especially at the elementary level, because that school had four classrooms. First and second were together, third and fourth were together, fifth and sixth were together. And I remember going into that fifth and sixth grade classroom. And by that time, kids are getting big. And it was the same size as, or if not smaller than the first and second grade classroom and the kids were just wedged in there. I remember trying to walk between the, the uh, seats because I had bought a cocoon to school and it uh, hatched and it was a 
Lunar moth. I will never forget that. Anytime I see a picture of one or whatever, it's like, I know that's a lunar moth, right? <laughs> and had it in a jar and was able to carry that around to the other classrooms to show them, you know, what had hatched out of the cocoon. And you could barely get between the rows of students because that classroom was so jam-packed. And then the seventh grade was in a classroom by itself. Third grade experience was at Willa Baker Elementary School in the Cambria area. And I explained that experience as being, walking into a school that was full of the daughters of the Confederacy. They did not want us there. It was obvious. I don't know if it was just because of the where the school was located and how the district lines were drawn. Um, It was mostly poor white students and a handful of African-American students uh, where the line stopped the uh, traditional I don't say traditional, but the the African-American community, because, you know, we could only live certain places. So we tended to live in the same area. And the line stopped not far from that school. And because my family lived out in the county, we were not in Christiansburg. We were Cambria at that time. So it was a small population of African-American families because we lived on the uh, literally the other side of the hill. And we went to this school. So students who I had spent the first two years of my education with at Friends Elementary School and went to church with many of them, played with many of them, all of a sudden we were separated and thrown into a world that was not good. I learned very little. So came into that in the third grade, the fourth grade, I would make up stories of being sick, not feeling good. I would do things to try to make myself sick, like walking around outside without a coat on, no shoes on. My mother, many times she had started working at the arsenal. And if she were, if she was on the midnight shift, I would just kind of hide in my bedroom and miss the bus. And then when she would come home, because she wouldn't get home until after we had already gone to school, I would creep down the stairs and try to convince her that I didn't feel good. And and a couple of times she just made me walk to school. I missed so much that I almost failed the fourth grade. And I remember the teacher getting with my mother and giving her makeup work. And one of the things I really didn't like about the fourth grade was Virginia history. Mm. I wasn't really sure why I didn't like it, but I just did not like it. I remember that book. I remember the smell of that book. Mm -hmm. The pictures in that book were basically black and white sketches, maybe Mm -hmm. a little tint of color to some of them. So between a teacher who obviously didn't care for you and um, just a situation that was not good and then So I I managed to make up the work and pass fourth grade, went to fifth, and it was the school was uh, first grade through fifth grade. And my whole world changed, so to speak, as far as education. 
when I got out of that building, I basically made straight D's the whole time through that building. I learned little of nothing in first and second grade because of the size of the classrooms. And at that time, now I know that those teachers understood what was getting ready to happen to them. And they didn't know what their life was going to be, whether they were going to have jobs, what was going to happen to them. So I'm sure they were kind of distracted, or she was, because the one teacher was a bit distracted. I remember kids being all around her desk and her trying to check work and help students. And there was a couple of times she and I did not have a good time Mm -hmm. because she didn't understand that I needed more or I knew more than what she thought I knew and would say, well, that's not correct. And because I knew and thought it was, um, I remember having to change her saying I needed to change an answer to a particular question. And I literally just erased it so much that I rubbed a hole in the paper. So, okay, Mm -hmm. there's a hole there. I can't write anything. You know, it's just like, I'm not doing it, right? Won't write what you want me to write. So I just rubbed, erased a hole into the paper so I couldn't write in that spot. Those first five years of my education were not good. Sixth grade, actually went back to Friends Elementary School because at that time, I guess the schools were getting overcrowded in Montgomery County and they needed some place to put children. So they opened that building back up. And sixth grade went to that building, I think, in Montgomery County for about maybe four or five years before they built the new high school. That was interesting, too, to go back to a building that you had started your education in. And now you're with a mixed group of students, and not just all African-Americans, uh, all white teachers. Um, so that, that was an experience. Anyway. So my education in Montgomery County schools, uh, even through the 12th grade, was not good, um, just for many different reasons. Um, In elementary school, that first few years, you had to really fight, and literally fight, and that was most of the students, uh, my older sisters and brothers. um, But sports was a good outlet for me. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I played basketball and track. And um, those were those were really changing points for me. I had a teacher in the seventh grade. Uh, her name was uh, Georgia Cox, and Miss Cox was something else. So there are two teachers who had a big influence on me, and both their names are Mrs. Cox, yeah. Miss Georgia Cox, and Miss Norma Cox. Um, and. and I remember Miss Cox, Georgia Cox, she, she didn't really take anything from anybody. And her class was labeled that class. And we would get blamed for a lot of stuff and whatever. And she just was like, she would just ignore other teachers who would make comments or whatever. Um, because she, she, we were her class. And it was, that's all it was to it. And so with all the faults or whatever that may have been in that classroom, because students were uh, tracked. So you had this class were the close up smart students and then blah, 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 and on down. Um, 
that was a that was a bad situation. Mm-hmm. Um, in the sixth grade, after coming out of those first five years, I received the award for the highest grade point average in social studies. Oh, after awesome. coming out of that, yeah. In the um, seventh grade, I ended up in because we were again tracked and grouped in a class where now it would never happen where students literally were not taught. We we went to maybe one class, one regular class, and then the rest of the day, you did nothing. You just sat in that classroom or they would find some kind of odd jobs or it was very, very strange. And I had to beg my mother. I had to tell her, said, mom, you know, they, they put me in this class and they're not doing anything. So finally, they moved me to the next level of class. And in that class, the young man who ended up being our class valedictorian was in that class too. Now, he got placed in that class and from their tracking, he should have been in the highest class. Anyway, when they finally realized they had made a mistake with him also, they pulled him out and he really didn't like being with those other students. So they would ended up putting him back in our class but then pulling him out for math and English. But with science, he and I battled for the highest grade point in that class, back and forth. You know, before I was moved into that class, it was clearly he had, he was the top student. When I came in and I'm coming in like six weeks or more behind because I was in this other class and was able to compete with him, right? So, you know, I I sometimes get a little frustrated as if I had really had an education, where might I be, right? Right. Or be able to do more or whatever. But I also know God has a plan. So sometimes those life experiences help us to understand and help others deal with things like that. I have to start including Mrs. Altizer too, because she really, when she saw that I could learn and that I was interested and that I was making A's in that classroom, she really kind of tell, uh, encouraged me uh-huh. and supported my thinking. Yeah. And so that was when I understood, yeah, I've, I've got a brain. I, yeah. there's some, uh-huh. there's some stuff going on here. Right. Mrs. Mrs. Cox, it was her standing up and just the way she carried herself Mm -hmm. as I am somebody and I'm not taking a whole bunch of nothing off of anybody that helped me understood. Yeah, this is what a woman could be. And she's pretty, uh, very much like my mother with her attitude. And then Mrs. Norma Cox was the coach in high school and her taking the extra time to help develop my talents, uh, especially as a shot putter and um, leadership, which mm-hmm. at that time I had no idea even what that was, right? It was just, right. you know, you just do, right? That's how they helped develop me. My father died um, suddenly, to me, at least it was suddenly, I was 10. So we were from 10, oh, excuse me, from 17 years old to four, year, four years old. So my mother had really stayed at home 
except for some substitute teaching mm -hmm. uh, when the um, schools were getting ready to be integrated to be able to get some funding uh, Montgomery County had to hire some African Americans uh, to help with a reading program mm -hmm. and she was hired one of the a couple two or three African American women hired to go into the schools to help with reading and she ended up at Willa Baker the year before I went to Willa Baker and she talks about how the principal of the school when she came in to introduce herself and whatever she said she never looked at me she just turned and looked out the window never looked at her um, so that environment was a hostile to her even before the children got there. Uh, my mother was always civically involved with the NAACP and the church and all kinds of different things. And with her coming from Ohio and having a different mindset around what my rights are and what I'm able to do and what we should be doing as a community also helped other people in the community understand okay, we can do these things. And one of the things that she did was, for those who may be familiar with the Christian Brim Institute, mm -hmm. well, we belong to Schaefer Memorial Baptist Church. Mm -hmm. And right next to Schaefer Memorial Baptist Church was the Hill School, which mm -hmm. was the first site of the Christian Brim Institute. And when they built the institute, then that site became the elementary school for them until they built Friends Elementary School in the 60s. So that building was just empty. She was one who led the effort to open that building back up, to revamp it, and for it to become a community center for the African-American community. So, I mean, those were efforts when I think about it. I remember, again, because I was young, say six, seven, mm -hmm. and my father operated heavy equipment and he got a bulldozer and the basement of that building had gotten filled with um, mud and dirt. So it had to be dug out. And I remember people in that community, in that building, seeing people with wheelbarrows, you know, hauling out dirt and five gallon buckets hauling out dirt and him with the bulldozer digging out. And, and I think now what that, undertaking that was to get that building back up and going and when head start came to montgomery county that's the building where it was first housed at so many programs went on in that building there uh, and the town actually tried to take it back at one time and we're going to auction it off and there were some trustees from the church who understood no that belongs to to schaefer you cannot do that and from what I'm told, literally the day of the auction showed up with the deed to the property or that property would have been taken away from the black wow. community. But I always was a child who listened. So those were some of the things that really um, uh, developed me. And when my father died and my mother went to work at the arsenal on a swing shift, and I had younger brothers and sisters and older brothers and sisters. There were kind of many years gaps between us, like three sets of us who were leaving the house. The older ones, the younger ones, you know, were younger. So mm -hmm. you took on some more responsibilities. Mm -hmm. um, I learned to cook 
very early, but I had been watching my mother for years. So it kind of came natural. So, yeah, just so many different things. When yeah. I, the older I get, the more I reflect on, I was always kind of an independent child. My mother will uh, talk about her seven children. She says, I have seven children and they're all different. And she'll start kind of naming the characteristics of this one is my this and this one's my that. And I'm always the fighter. Be watching and listening for part two of Penny Franklin's Changemaker Journey, where she will share her own unique approach to working with others to develop solutions that address racism in her community head on. Thank you for tuning in to the Blue Roads Changemaker podcast. We hope you will follow our work and learn more about how you can get involved and start your own Changemaker Journey. Contact us at www.blueroadseducation.org.